I just like things to look fancy sometimes, but I, I understand they're not for everyone. And it's a, it's the new tabs versus spaces thing, I think. So I'm just giving you a hard time. <laughs> you know how it is. Like I'm oh, going to yeah. wait for you to perfect it. And then I'm going to steal your config and try it. <laughs> Great developers steal ideas. That's how we work. Right? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I just got done copy and pasting tons of code this morning. <laughs> so why not copy and paste your setup as well? Big thanks to our partners, Linode, Fastly, and LaunchDarkly. We love Linode. They keep it fast and simple. Check them out at linode.com slash changelog. Our bandwidth is provided by Fastly. Learn more at fastly.com. And get your feature flags powered by LaunchDarkly. Get a demo at launchdarkly.com. This episode is brought to you by our friends at O'Reilly. Many of you know O'Reilly for their animal tech books and their conferences, but you may not know they have an online learning platform as well. The platform has all their books, all their videos, and all their conference talks. Plus, you can learn by doing with live online training courses and virtual conferences, certification practice exams, and interactive sandboxes and scenarios to practice coding alongside what you're learning. They cover a ton of technology topics, machine learning, AI, programming languages, DevOps, data science, cloud, containers, security, and even soft skills like business management and presentation skills. You name it, it is all in there. If you need to keep your team or yourself up to speed on their tech skills, then check out O'Reilly's online learning platform. Learn more and keep your team skills sharp at O'Reilly.com slash changelog. Again, O'Reilly.com slash changelog. This is JS Party, your weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. If you haven't joined the JS Party community yet, what are you waiting for? It's a fun and welcoming place where you can discuss web dev, ask questions, get notified of live shows, and help make the podcast even more awesome. Just head to jsparty.fm slash community and sign up today. Okay, let's get into it. Hey, it's party time, y'all. Hello and welcome to JS Party. I am your host today, Nick Nisi. Ahoy hoy. Ahoy hoy. And I am joined today by Cable. Cable, what's up? Hello, hello. Calling in from a beautiful vacation home. Excited to be on the air. So jealous of your vacation home. Look beautiful in the picture you posted in our Slack, which you can join at changelog.com slash community. Join today and see Cable's amazing view. And <laughs> we have a special guest today. We have Brian Douglas. Brian, what is up? Hello. Hello. Glad to be here. I am super interested in your view, too. All I see is a blank wall behind you, though. <laughs> That's true. I, I decided to go for internet connectivity over view while recording. It makes a lot of sense. Probably a wise choice, for sure. <laughs> so today, we are going to be talking about, uh, well, the... the placeholder title that we have is software and hardware for easier development. But really, we're going to be talking about our sweet setups. And Brian, we have you on the show to talk about yours as well. I can just tell looking at yours and comparing it to my messy setup and Cable's blank wall that you are definitely <laughs> the most prepared here. But Cable, you are on vacation, so that totally makes sense. But yeah, we are going to do that. And we thought we would start off with some software. So maybe let's start on that side and talk about uh, some of the software that we use to make uh, development and or streaming easier. So why don't we start with development and uh, maybe start with like things like where we all do our development, like a code editor. Brian, what do you use? I am in between. I, I use MacVim is my main driver. 
Uh, I've been a Vim user since Thanksgiving of 2014. Uh, took a week off and learned Vim, and I just can't really pry it away from my hands. But I also use VS Code. VS Code mainly because Vim is it's long in the tooth, and like getting things like the TypeScript and the IntelliSense stuff, it's more effort than I, I want to put in to get that to work. So I just use VS Code for that stuff. I hear you. I hear you. You're, you're making this really hard because I did tweet right before this that I was going to try really hard not to make this a Vim party, but I didn't know that you use Vim, so now it's really hard. <laughs> uh, I do use Vim. I use NeoVim for all of my development, and I've done that. I've used NeoVim since probably 2015, but Vim straight away since uh, 2011, probably. Uh, I'd have to go back and look at my dot files for the first commit because I started that and then I just haven't stopped. Yeah, I used that. I did go through the grueling setup. My my Vim can my Vimrc is only like I don't know 1,200 lines, so. Not too bad. Mine's huge as well. Yeah. <laughs> but are you using IntelliSense though? I am. I'm using a, a plugin called coc.invim or Conqueror of Completion. And uh, that gives you access to the LSP and it does IntelliSense and refactoring and go to reference, all of that cool VS Code stuff right in Vim. So it's the best of, of both worlds for sure. What about you, K-Ball? Well, let me tell you, I also am a Vim user, but I'm going to take my Vim heritage back to 2003 when I first learned Vim for a Fortran class uh, at my university (laughs) and have stuck in that. I cheat on the setup front, so I actually stole Nick's setup. Uh, He publishes it on GitHub, so you you could just download it, get it going. I will say I should spend a little bit more time understanding it because a couple of times I've tried to modify it and it ends up a little funky. I have <laughs> right now something I need to fix for my TypeScript setup that I, I don't love. But I'm a Vim user and I'll, I'll go one dimension deeper, which is I also have my terminal set up using Tmux with Vim bindings so that I can treat my entire terminal environment as if it were a Vim editor copying, pasting and doing stuff between different environments. So the kind of superpower that that unlocks is you can just kind of do anything without your hands ever leaving the keyboard and do it incredibly fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I too live inside of Vim inside of Tmux and find that to be a fantastic setup. I attempted that. So my previous employer was Netlify and uh, I was like the only person doing front end, but everybody else touched all the, the back end. So I was indoctrinated with Tmux, but it never stuck. So I'm oh, yeah. familiar, but... I still just uh, use the regular Mac Vim. Fun thing that can happen when you start doing all that, though, is like, so I had a, an incident number almost a decade ago now, but it was a coffee MacBook incident where the coffee met the MacBook. I'm familiar. Yeah, it was not a good time. And I learned, by the way, that if you Google for how to get liquid out of a MacBook or something like that, like I am not the first person to have this. Google tells me there are over a million people who have had this problem. <laughs> and written about it in one form or another. But for a time period, my developer environment was just on the fritz. And I was, at the time, I was the only technical employee of very early startup. Like, I could not be on the fritz. But being in a Tmux and Vim-based world, it was super easy to set up a virtual machine that I logged into via SSH from a Chromebook and was able to continue doing development. And dealing with static assets sucked, but everything else just felt like my environment, more or less. So having that type of build environment that is that can live in the terminal in that way and has all the power that you want actually has a lot of 
robustness effects as well. Mm -hmm. So I kind of want to build on that a little bit and talk about some weird things that I'm currently doing with my setup. And I've been kind of experimenting with this, but over the holidays this year, I ended up picking up a M1 Mac mini. And I was going to ask you probably, we're probably all on Macs here, right? For day-to-day work. How'd you guess? Yeah. (laughs) For work, I have a, a 2016 or not a 26, a 16-inch 2020 MacBook Pro. And that's what I do all of my work on. But now my personal machine is this M1 Mac Mini. And I have this whole setup, which we'll kind of talk about the hardware side of things a little bit more with that. But I have that all hooked up going into the Mac Mini, including all of this audio interface stuff. So I don't really want to be switching that around constantly, like if I'm you know taking a Zoom call. But I also don't want my Zoom calls to suffer in audio quality by just using like the built-in mic or whatever. So sometimes I end up working because I'm just using Vim and Tmux. I just happen to work from the Mac mini SSH into the other machine. And if I want to access other things like, Oh, I want to, you know, connect to a database or whatever through SSH config, you can just configure like port forwarding and have all of that. So it's like, I'm trying to hit my local host, you know, five, four, three, two for Postgres. And I can just have it automatically redirect to this MacBook and run everything from there. And then I have kind of the best of both worlds where, you know, I can run my podcast app and listen to podcasts if I want to. That is like M1 based. Like it can only run, it's an iPhone app that runs on that. But then everything that I do, it's almost indistinguishable because it's all running through SSH, which is very transparent when my whole setup just runs in the terminal anyway. So it's, it's something I've been playing around with, mostly because of this audio setup, but I, I thought I'd throw that out as a pretty fun thing I do. How do we get this away from being a Vim party? Yeah. All right. We got we to gotta move, move on. What are some other fun software things that maybe aren't as deeply tied into the terminal? Yeah, I would say the uh, what I've been playing a lot around with, and uh, my day job is GitHub, uh, so I had some pretty early access with GitHub's code spaces. Mm. So... Plug, plug, maybe, I don't know. But I've been using it for one-off like instances. Like, So I've been a contribution to Node.js, very trivial, when the whole ES modules things came through and the error messages weren't, like, they weren't coherent. So I ended up doing a PR to cha- update an error message. But to make that one change and run the test on my local machine, the thing had to like fly away and take off. Because I have a 2018 Mac, I don't have the M1 yet. But the cool thing about this is uh, they actually have code spaces set up with a .dot .container file. So I could open up a code space from GitHub, run the test in that code space, and it's all on GitHub, I guess, servers and stuff like that, that mm-hmm. I could just run tests pretty easily. So I've done that quite a few times for open source contributions, running tests in a hosted environment. So like kind of similar to your, your Mac mini setup, but except those Mac minis are sitting somewhere in like a, I guess a code space is probably in some sort of Microsoft server room. Yeah. Yeah. Dockerizing your dev and test environments is so powerful. It's not something actually that we have set up at my current work, but it is something I have done in the past. And it, it makes it so trivial to do things like that where you're like, oh, well, why don't I just run this someplace else? Why don't I completely reproduce the environment that I'm seeing here over here? Like it's, it's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And not to bring this back to Vim, but I've totally used code spaces to use the terminal to run Vim on my iPad. <laughs> so it's a cool environment, no matter how you you enter it. I, I really like code spaces. That's a cool thing. It's really cool. I didn't even think to even connect to my local environment to then leverage Vim in my, because uh, I haven't set up my Vim config because I've used the Vim bindings in VS Code, which is, it, it's actually the best, I was going to say IDE. VS Code is technically not an IDE, but a code editor mm-hmm. um, that uses Vim bindings. 
but it's still not it's still not all the way there. So I, yeah. I would not unleash the Vim all in VS Code. I would uh, still use the, the local version of it. One cool thing about CodeSpaces is if you have a public repo called .files, it will set that up in your code space. So then we'll just use it. Yeah, it's pretty cool. You're teaching me. (laughs) I must admit, I have not tried code spaces yet. So may have to go do that. Works fantastic. I've mostly used it as an iPad dev environment, but I really like it for that. So let's talk about another piece. Uh, Let's talk about maybe remote collaboration and kind of how that pertains to development. As we've been working remotely, whether we typically did or not, the last year has been kind of a remote-centric world. What are some of the tools that have helped you work remotely or collaborate remotely with others. Codespaces could definitely be one. Yeah, I use Codespaces in combination with Twitch. Okay. So I do a lot of live streaming on Twitch. And uh, it's a nice way to, because I'm always working out of a GitHub repo, I already have stuff up and running, so that way folks who are watching me live can get context pretty quickly just by me dropping a link to the the repo or PR or issue or whatnot. So every now and then, if I get really blocked and it's like it's not as exciting watching me get stuck, I will drop a CodeSpace live share link, well, a VS Code live share link, uh, but it's connected directly to my uh, GitHub CodeSpace, and then folks will jump in there, or I'll drop it in like a Discord server, and people will jump in there and like highlight exactly what the the issue is, or, or just write the code. But yeah, I've been doing a lot of that actually. That's cool. Yeah, yeah, I'm so much more ghetto. <laughs> like, push up a branch. Okay, let me pull it down. Let me screen share with you. Okay. <laughs> I will say that I have used, I've jumped out of Vim and into VS Code for some like pair programming. And that is phenomenal with that live share plugin. It's so nice being able to work on the same files or you can like a lot of times I'll just like have, you know, follow to the right, I think is is the option. And it lets me like, it, it just keeps the, the right half of VS Code open to whatever file uh, the person I'm collaborating with is in. And then I can work independently in another file but we can like see what each other are doing and we're constantly like up to date with everything and you can share like your dev server as well. So, you know, we can make changes, hit save and both refresh localhost and we're seeing all of that port forwarding again, just magic. But yeah, it's it's really cool and I, I just couldn't imagine going through the last year without tools like this. It's so nice having them. I'm curious, are both of you, are you normally remote employees or do you go remote because of last year. I have been remote since 2013. So, okay. uh, yeah. But last year has been completely different too. Yeah. I go back and forth. So I had been remote for a few years and I started at where I'm working now at Humu in late October before the pandemic. So late October 2019 and was in person. And I was in person for all of five months and then we went remote. <laughs> so, um, you know, kind of wandering back and forth. But I think what was key is Prior to that, that particular company, everybody had been in person. And so there was a lot of rediscovery of, or at least everyone on the dev team had been in person. So there was a lot of rediscovery of remote practices. Yeah. And I was at a company that was fully remote up until last May. And then I joined a new company, C2FO, that are in Kansas City. And so I'm working as a remote employee from Nebraska for them. And uh, it's been really easy because everybody has been remote this whole time. I'm hoping that it will continue like this, the patterns that we've built up for remote work will continue when a majority of folks go back to the office. Wait, Nick, you got a new job? I did yeah, a year ago. <laughs> Color me out of the loop. <laughs> I haven't talked about it too much. Are you no longer working on Dojo? Not too much. I'm doing more uh, mostly React stuff, but full stack TypeScript. So still singing TypeScript's praises. 
So another piece, and we've kind of talked about it already, is uh, terminals and kind of terminal-based work. So obviously, Tmux and Vim has been a, a, a topic. So let's try and stay away from that. But what about like terminal emulators specifically? What's what's the ones that you all use? Yeah, I'm pretty boring. I use um, this iTerm. iTerm? Yeah. Yeah. That's probably the most popular one on Mac for sure. Yep. It's easy to set up, easy to configure, and uh, looks great. Yeah, I think I just use terminal. Really? Like on super boring. Yeah. I do uh, set up like, what is it? Homebrew or whatever, like the green on black coloring scheme. Oh, yeah. Because that both helps my eyes and makes people who don't know code look at what I'm doing and be like, whoa, you're from the matrix. But, um, <laughs> mostly because I'm used to it. Sure. So I moved away from terminal because it doesn't work well with like the color scheme that I use is called base 16. And it's actually like a hundred or more different color schemes that are all based around like these essential colors. And so you can, you can switch out and there's like a really cool command line. I just type base 16 underscore and then tab complete to whatever color scheme I want. And it lets me switch from light to dark or all of these different kinds of themes really fast, but it's all through like terminal commands and term, uh, last time I checked, at least the Mac terminal dot app doesn't support that. So it wouldn't work. So I was using iTerm for that because iTerm works totally fine with it. Um, but I've dabbled a little bit with, I don't know if I want to admit this to be honest, but I've dabbled a little bit with ligatures in my code and in my, in my font, like, you know, environment. And if you use ligatures in iTerm, it actually kicks it out of metal rendering, which is the GPU rendering mode. And so it significantly slows things down. Uh, so for that, I've been for probably the last year using a terminal called Kitty, which is cross OS works on everything terminal emulator that is all GPU based. And it does some unique things with like, I'd be horrible at explaining what it's actually doing, but it's, it works totally fine with ligature support because it's basically only rendering the character once and then copying it or something like, so it doesn't have to do a lot of GPU intensive work or whatever to do that. So it stays GPU rendered and stays fast the whole time. Plus it's really easy to configure and it has this whole like framework around writing little terminal apps called kittens that you can do. And I haven't written many, but I've been looking at it and it's ways of like being able to like split up the window or have it do like specific things. And the terminal emulator can like render images and things like that. So it's, it's really cool. All of the stuff that it can do. But why? That's <laughs> pretty cool. I've actually never heard of this. <laughs> you say why, but I, the one thing that I do remember from Tmux is when I did try to do it, like the window splitting and the, the basic terminal on Mac, I'm not sure if it was like my settings, but I could never get it to work properly uh, yeah. or get stuck in a, a split screen and could not move out of it. So like, I feel like iTerm handled that a little bit better. Sure. Uh, but I'm actually interested in looking into the kitty, actually. Yeah, check it out. It's really cool, really fast. And um, if you're running it on M1 Max, I think you have to compile from source. It's the only thing that I'm having to do right now, but it's totally fine. It works, and uh, it's it's pretty awesome. I actually meant why ligatures. Like oh. That seemed like the oh. whole inspiration, but, <laughs> See? but really, why ligatures? <laughs> I shouldn't have brought it up. Sometimes I just want to experiment with making my my terminal look fancy. I see VS Code and it looks really good, but it's horribly slow when I'm so used to like this GPU rendered fast terminal. I'm like, I want to do this cool stuff. Sometimes I use ligatures, but I use like this project called Vim Dev Icons. So like it like renders like it's a whole font of like, you know, JS symbol, TS symbol, you know, Python symbol, all of these things. And it can render like all of that. So I have all of these fancy little symbols everywhere that are based on this like very specific font. And uh, I just like things to look fancy sometimes, but I, I understand they're not for everyone. And it's a, 
it's the new tabs versus spaces thing, I think. So I'm just giving you a hard time. <laughs> you know how it is. Like I'm oh, gonna yeah. wait for you to perfect it and then I'm gonna steal your config and try it, you know, because <laughs> great developers steal ideas. That's how we work. Right? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I just got done copy and pasting tons of code this morning. <laughs> so why not copy and paste your setup as well? What's up, party people? This episode is brought to you by our friends at Square. For our listeners out there building applications with Square, if you haven't yet, you need to check out their API Explorer. It's an interactive interface you can use to build, view, and send HTTP requests they call Square APIs. API Explorer lets you test your requests using actual sandbox or production resources inside your account, such as customers, orders, and catalog objects. You can use the API Explorer to quickly populate sandbox or production resources in your account. Then you can interact with those new resources inside the seller dashboard. For example, if you use API Explorer to create a customer in your production or sandbox environment, the customer is displayed in the production or sandbox seller dashboard. This tool is so powerful and will likely become your best friend when interacting with, testing, or playing with your applications inside Square. Check the show notes for links to the docs, the API Explorer, and the developer account signup page, or head to developer.squareup.com slash explore slash square to jump right in. Again, check for links in the show notes or head to developer.squareup.com slash explore slash square to play right now. All right, so we've talked about some of the more development-focused things like editors, terminals, remote collaboration. Let's talk a little bit more about like personal productivity. What are some tools that you leverage to keep yourself productive, keep yourself in the know of what you need to be doing, and keep your teammates in the know of what you, you are doing? K-Ball, you want to go first? Sure. I manage a lot of my own personal productivity and other things through a tool called Rome Research, which is basically a uh, networked note taker, more or mm -hmm. less. It lets you take notes. The kind of key concept is a nested bullet point of some sort, but um, then the other key concept is you can tag things and anything can be a tag and it links off to other tags. And so it lets you create sort of a network of all the different notes that you've taken. I have a few different things that I do with that, that to manage my personal productivity. So one is every day I have a set of priorities. One of the core concepts, you get a daily notes that you're just doing daily notes and that's automatic. So I use that heavily. Every day I have a core list of priorities, things I'm trying to get done, at least one, typically no more than five. That's my key thing. I also map out my meetings for the day. I am a manager. I have other stuff that around product things. I have a lot of meetings, so I'll map out what are all my meetings and prep for those meetings and have, okay, what are the things that I wanna make sure I cover? Now, one of the nice things about the network stuff is I can I tag every meeting with who is it with, uh, particularly for one-on-ones, but also other things. And then I can go and look at all my past conversations with that person or other things I've tagged with that person so that I have an easy way to boot up context for, okay, I'm talking with this person. The last time I talked with them, we were covering these things. Here's the project that's going on with them or the, the sort of state of what my interactions with them are. So I use that a lot for myself and I don't share it with other people. It's entirely personal. But combining with the sort of practice of every day I'm having a set of priorities and I'm mapping out what are my meetings and what do I need to accomplish in them um, with this kind of networked concept where I'm keeping track of like what are all the different ongoing threads with different people and projects and this, that, and the other. And that 
helps tremendously for keeping myself on track. Nice. Are you following like, is it called Zettelkasten? Is that kind of where that idea of like daily notes or daily? So Zettelkasten is another thing that is, I think, really around actually processing your data inputs to create data outputs. Um, So it's like, how do I take notes about the things that I read, aggregate, process, and do that, and then create sort of reusable concepts and blocks that I can then generate outputs with. I've played around with that. It's something I'd like to get better at, but it is not what I use for my personal productivity at all. So you keep everything from like like notes and do you like manage like a to-do list in that as well? I mean, manage a to-do list might be a little strong for what I do. It's not, sure. I don't have a single global to-do list that I'm keeping track of, um, but I do manage my priorities on a daily, weekly, and monthly basis. Gotcha. Brian, how about you? Yeah, so to define my role a little bit before I jump into that, I, I'm a developer advocate, so I meet with different teams across organizations, like engineering, product, sometimes marketing, sometimes support. Uh, so I, t- I take a lot of meetings. So like number one is I use Calendly, and I have it connected to my Google mm-hmm. Calendar. Uh, so that way anybody can grab like a 30-minute meeting with me, which I make 25 minutes because uh, I want a five-minute buffer between the next meeting if, if I do get back-to-back meetings. Uh, but I also do run, I run a couple podcasts and some live streams with guests. So Calendly also is set up to also hook up. So you can have a, a live stream or a podcast with me. The podcast I run is called Jamstack Radio. So as soon as someone says, hey, yes, I'll be on the podcast, I give them a Calendly link. And then once the Calendly link is selected, or sorry, once the calendar event is selected, then I produce a paper doc. I just got into Obsidian, so like Obsidian is kind of like research. I haven't got that far to like actually get really into it. So paper, Dropbox paper has been my go-to, kind of like Notion if anybody's not familiar with paper. Uh, and then that paper doc is like the notes for the conversations, the, the meeting. I also do the same thing in all my calendar invites is always have an agenda. Uh, so that way I can keep that 25 minutes intact. But going further down deeper into the productivity hole, um, I started doing this when I joined GitHub is I created a GitHub project on my actual user profile. Uh, Not a lot of people know you can do this, but if you go to your user profile on GitHub, you can create a project for yourself. And because I manage a lot of different repos, I'm in a bunch of stuff. It's like my central location to basically put issues that I'm mentioned on or notifications because like notifications at GitHub, it's it's a working (laughs) feature that could be improved and it's always being improved. But if I need to track an issue because I was mentioning it or need to wait for responses, I add it to a column similar to like, well, Kanban boards uh, is how GitHub projects work. Mm-hmm. And then I have like a things I'm doing today. I have got a backlog column. I've got a things that are almost complete or blocked. And I just use everything. And I, the benefit of this is that everything's a GitHub issue at GitHub. We use GitHub to build GitHub. So it's not too hard to say like, oh, I've got to get this, this conference sponsored. I'm going to just take that issue and put it in my project board and I'll just check it tomorrow. So uh, GitHub issues tend to be, and notifications tend to be my my email. I don't actually get a lot of emails, to be quite honest, because uh, I turn all those off. So like that's what I've done. But also even deeper, because I do like a, a, a live stream uh, every Tuesday and Friday on Twitch, uh, my website, BDucky Live, is backed by a GitHub repo. Well, most websites are, but legitimately the database for my website is a GitHub repo. So all the posts that you see on my homepage are GitHub issues. So because of that, if you ever want to know what I'm, I'm going to be streaming next on Twitch, 
my GitHub issues, like those three issues are the things I'll be working on. And then I have a project board that says, it's like my backlog for streaming topics. And if I move it to the live column, because BW Live, I'm going to stick to the brand, then I will actually run a GitHub action that runs on a cron every Tuesday and Friday, early in the morning. And it looks for that column, and then it, it actually sends a notification to my Discord. It says, Brian will be streaming with this issue, show up at this time. So I'm working on a course about automation on GitHub. So like I'm kind of over the top when it comes to it, um, but I'm happy to <laughs> dig in deeper. But uh, I'm a little... Well, I guess it's my job to know how to use GitHub. So like that, I'm just sort of over the top because of that. That is awesome. All right, I want to dig in right away. (laughs) (laughs) First off, questions. Are you generating posts directly from the issues then? Or they're linked? Okay, interesting. Because I've I've done like statically rendered sites where I have like the files are there. But how are you you doing that mapping from issue to (laughs) post? GraphQL. Actually, that's literally the answer. So GitHub has a great GraphQL API. So any issue that has the label publish, it will actually publish it to my website. So I can write up a whole blog post or what I've been doing really is my issues end up becoming blog posts. So like if you look at my latest one, which is I think I was organizing notifications with Discord. It's like a blog post as the post is like written and comments are set up because I'll just take that and digest it into like a dev two post eventually. Right now I'm rebuilding Netlify with GitHub Actions, which it sounds sexier than it really is. Like I'm not running any servers. I just happen to want like deploy previews and some other features that Netlify has, but use that with GitHub Pages. So I'm just rebuilding some of those features with the tools that I can use uh, with GitHub Actions. Uh, So I'm working on that right now. So if you look at that issue or post, whichever, if you're on the BW Live or if you're in the BW slash live repo, you'll see I'm like slowly adding comments that will eventually become a blog post. Uh, and I'm all about scaling too as well. So like the reason why I just add comments to the issues because if I can make that in a blog post, I can probably make it into a conference talk or a YouTube video eventually if I just take enough notes. That is really cool. It's uh, I love all of the automation going into it and how open it is. Like I definitely want to go check it out. Would that be on your GitHub username? Yeah, so it's a, so Bduggy is my username. So if mm-hmm. you go to github.com slash Bduggy slash live, or you can go to bduggy.live, which is the website, and click the GitHub link or click any issue, and it'll take you to GitHub as well. But yeah, I didn't get into it this as well. I, um, I'm using this tool called OneGraph, which is combining a bunch of APIs together. It's like a mesh network of, of APIs. I think the founders spoke at JSConf a couple years ago as well. But I'm basically using that as an aggregation to my GitHub API, but also some other APIs like Discord and uh, Twitch. And then I'm using Next.js as a site. Uh, so it's built on Next.js. It's using Relay to sort of consume the GraphQL. So if you're familiar with Apollo or Urkel, Relay is another, another version of a client. And then I'm using server-side rendering to also make sure it's you know SEO-friendly as well. And I'm looking at this. It looks as though, if I'm getting this right, commenting on a blog post actually ends up going to a GitHub comment on the issue. Is that right? Correct, yes. So anybody can add a rocket ship to my website and say, hey, good job or thumbs up. Uh, That will actually apply to the issue. So I'm actually, I say this out loud. I probably shouldn't say it out loud, but I'm trying to get the GitHub team to add reactions, webhooks. Um, (laughs) If someone does like a thumbs up, I can trigger another event based on that. And like I can get notified as well whenever someone thumbs up a, a post. But we'll see. I'm not holding my breath. I'm just, I need to actually send that message today. <laughs> That'll be fun. All right. I just put a rocket ship on your Netlify post. This is super <laughs> cool. Yeah. 
I love it, V-Duggy. Yeah, and, and like major props to uh, the OneGraph folks, Sean and, and Daniel. They they created this tool called OneBlog, which was like the initial prototype of this, and I happened to be an early user of it. So I just sort of took their idea and this ran with it, and that that's now sort of powers a lot of the stuff I'm doing on the internet. Now, if somebody didn't work at GitHub and they wanted to do this, I haven't kept up on what the pricing structure is for these different things. Is this something that they could cobble together for free? Which of these services are paid? Yeah, everything's free. So actions, you do have um, you do have like 2,000 minutes for free on a public open source public repo. Um, so like on a cron job, most of my, my actions are usually within a minute. They'll build and run and trigger stuff. So like I'd have to hit that a lot to so hit hit the limit. So I'm doing a lot of crazy stuff with actions. That's 2,000 minutes a month, right? Yes. Yeah, and that's across your entire profile. So if you had running all across the board, it's 3,000 for paid accounts. So it's um, it's a bit of a bump. And then obviously you you know contact your salesperson for four more minutes. I will say though that the OneGraph stuff is all free as well. Uh, it's a free product. And yeah, everything else I do is, yeah, it's pretty much free. I'm very cheap. <laughs> and I try not to pay for things. This like I just started deploying something in Azure and I'm just looking at that number to see if, if I deployed it correctly or if I can optimize that to make it pennies instead of dollars. Um, and I just deployed it last week. So it's it's pretty much like, it was like 30, 36 cents or whatnot. So I am all for like the 12 cent AWS bill. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of, I tried to make a Slack bot using AWS like a couple of years ago. And... Ever since then, every couple of months, I just get charged a dollar from AWS, even though the Slack bot is long since dead. And just last week, I went in and tried again to try and figure out what it was so I could stop it. And it's, they're holding on to 0.172 keys for me, and they're charging me storage for that, like 18 cents a month. And I can't figure out how to stop it, but it's a dollar every like three months. So I'm like basing, like, I'm like, do I need to really worry about this right now? And it just keeps getting pushed down my to-do list. Yeah, it's the dollar for every three months that's going to take you six hours to figure out how to turn off. <laughs> right. <laughs> I just wanted to stop, but I know that this is how AWS keeps going. So, you know, I'm doing my part. Yeah, we thank you for that. <laughs> yeah. uh, speaking of my to-do list, though, I'll, I'll kind of talk about my setup a little bit, which is not nearly as robust, but does have a little bit of automation, which I, I'm pretty excited about. I use closed, more closed tools, obviously, than GitHub. Um, I don't think you could be more open than that. Um, but I use a tool called OmniFocus on my Mac and phone and iPad and all of that to try and manage everything. But I try and make that my central hub for everything. Everything goes into that. I try and follow like the the GTD system of having one inbox that I check or multiple inboxes, but they all kind of feed into one. And I've tried to automate that as much as possible. And OmniFocus as a tool does make that pretty easy uh, actually, especially for a JavaScript developer. But, um, I like any mail that I get that I have to follow up on or have some kind of action on. I just have a button in my mail client that sends it to OmniFocus so I can check it off later. And it includes the, the full message. So I know exactly what to do. And then every morning I run through a checklist of things that I need to, to do as kind of like a morning routine to start up. And that includes things like finding out if there are code reviews that I've been assigned and the way I do that is through uh, OmniFocus has this whole automation system built in JavaScript that you can tie into. So I can press a button or have it automatically run that will go and fetch stuff from GitHub. And so I, I'm using GitHub's GraphQL API to go fetch any issues that I've been set as a code reviewer on that are not already in my system. 
and it'll automatically create a task for them and throw them in there with a link. And it puts a unique code that's based on like the issue number, the, the repo and the, the creator. So it's like a unique code that I can check for every day and see, oh, nope, that one already exists. So I'll just ignore it and not create another one. Or, you know, I've dropped it or whatever, and it, it doesn't have to, to do that. But then that way I know I have a list of everything I need to review. And then another script that runs that will go and check Jira's API, find any tasks that I'm uh, assigned to that are not already in my system, and it will put them in there. But it'll also check the ones that I have in there and go check their status on Jira. And if I've marked them as done in Jira, it'll mark them as done in my to-do list. So it kind of keeps them in sync between that. And so then I just have this one place that I'm checking for everything, and I can work off of there throughout the day. And what I do with like the Jira tasks, like a lot of times, like I'll just write up, you know, like all of the different things that I need to do. And I have some like templates that I, I keep track of for like, you know, typical dev work, you know, it's like do this, write tests, open a pull request, review any PR comments, and then merge the pull request and mark is done. And so like, those are like the typical things every, for every Jira ticket that comes in, it comes in as like a new project. And then it gets those templated items as tasks for that project. And then I can add any additional tasks that I want, you know, like go fix the tests in this file or make sure that you're, you're checking the style guide on this or whatever. And I'll add all of that in there. And then that kind of sets what I work on throughout the day. And I just use in OmniFocus flags to like flag things, flag things that I want to do today. And so I'll build up a list of typically no more than five things that I want to do and make sure that I try and get through all of those throughout the day. And then I'll review that at the end of the day in a shutdown routine that I have that goes through and like, I try and leave something open or write a a couple of tasks that will help me get going the next day or make sure that they're flagged so that I know exactly where to start. But I try and use all of that. And it's really cool because it's kind of automated in pushing and pulling from GitHub and Jira, but it's all coming to a single inbox for me to, to review. Man. I am simultaneously jealous of y'all's setups and grateful for the simplicity <laughs> of my approach. <laughs> like, that's amazing. And I would forget something or something would go stale or whatever. And I feel like I'd spend forever maintaining my setup. Yeah, I like that. I, actually, I've heard of OmniFocus, but I've never dug into it. But you have me intrigued. <laughs> it's pretty cool. It's the complete opposite of yours, though. It's an expensive tool. I think it's like $80 yeah. or it costs like so much per like... It's okay. a different price for Mac and iPhone and iPad. Okay, yeah. And it's Mac only. It's Apple only. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> In that ecosystem, though. So. Yeah, you lost me at $80. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> I've been using it for years, though. So it's it's kind of, it's definitely, I've, I've definitely, like, absorbed that payment. And I think that it's brought me enough value that it's been worth it. But I totally understand. Not to bring up Vim one more time, but this is why... <laughs> I am so ingrained because I did so much investing in my my dot files that it's hard to just let those go. Me too. Yeah. I mean, it's also fast and it's fantastic. So there's that too. But yeah, at this point, like I shouldn't say this, but I feel like my identity is tied to it a little bit. No. party people if you want to know what's happening with your code track errors and monitor app performance with sentry build better software faster with sentry's application monitoring platform diagnose fix and optimize the performance of your code 
Cut your time on error resolution from hours to minutes. It works with any language and integrates with dozens of services. Over 1 million developers and 68,000 organizations already use Sentry. And best of all, GS Party listeners new to Sentry get the team plan for free for three months. Head to Sentry.io to get started and use the code PARTYTIME when you sign up. Again, Sentry.io and use the code PARTYTIME because, hey, it's party time, y'all. So we've talked about software that we use for development. We've talked about productivity software. Now let's talk about some hardware that we use. What do we actually look at, touch, feel throughout the day to get our jobs done? What are the tangible pieces? Because that's very important when we work on all of this intangible stuff. Um, so let's start with monitors. What are What is your ideal monitor setup? And is it what you currently have? I do have an ultra-wide monitor. I, <laughs> I think three years ago, I jumped on the bandwagon. And uh, I love it. I use Spectacle as well as software to sort of manage mm-hmm. my windows. So Spectacle, basically, I can have my my Vim here. I can have my terminal here. I can have a web browser. And like I can have them all three up at the same time, which is like the best productivity for myself. And yeah, I, I cannot complain. It's like probably the best investment I've made for writing code and <laughs> ever, probably. Yeah. What do you have? 34, 38, 49 inch? Uh, I believe this one is 34. Okay. Yeah. Nice. I'm in the same boat. I have a 38 inch, but I went ultra wide too. Um, I kind of switched between this and I, I did have two 4K monitors. Everything was just too small and like too scattered. I use Moom for like the same thing as Spectacle to to keep things organized, but it was just too much to handle. So I kind of switched back to a single wide ultra wide monitor. And I typically have it in like a a one third, two thirds type split where I have like one third with like usually like Slack or a browser on top and then notes on the bottom in the one third column. And then two thirds is usually Kitty that has Tmux with three Vim splits or three splits, Vim running on the top and then two splits at the bottom, one for running like my server and then the other one for various, you know, Git commands or whatever. Yeah. When I'm working in the front end, I really like having a widescreen because I like to have my design and my browser and my terminal all visible at the same time and be able to be working when I'm doing backend work. I actually don't care that much. I'm totally happy working just on a laptop screen. Um, and it's, it's generally fine. And similarly when I'm doing like PM management, whatever, like I can do that from, from pretty much any environment. It's really when I start working on something where there's a visual aspect to it where I need to be looking and looking and thinking in the code at the same time. As soon as I'm in there, I'm like, oh, give me my widescreen. I need it. There is a, a, a new Chrome extension that I just started using, which I'm not sure if you all, it's called Easy Window Resize as well. I don't know how much like, content creation you all do, but um, or the listeners do as well. But I learned from an egghead course creator about like uh, being able to, because of the, like the large window size, sometimes you want to share a window, but you don't want to share the whole window, so you grab just the browser. But easy window resize, you could actually do Command-Shift-A, and you could set presets. So if you want 720p or if you want 1080p, because you might be doing a YouTube video or egghead course, I found that like 
absolutely amazing. Ooh, that's a great idea. Because like trying to get like 16.9 out of the browser, doing it by eye never works. And then obviously Mac laptops are not 16.9. They're like awkward. And I know we, we're going into hardware, but the other thing I use is RDM. RDM actually lets you, because like the, the laptop screen is Retina for MacBooks. Uh, but you, if you want Retina, but 720p, you could actually do that with RDM. It's open source software to be able to change your screen resolution on the fly. Oh, cool. Yeah. And that kind of brings in a question I was going to ask you, you know, as someone who is much more prolific on Twitch than I am, how you work with a, an ultra wide monitor on Twitch since it's not very well suited for that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this might go deeper in the hardware conversation too as well. So I have a, a Windows PC. Because okay. uh, I found live streaming from just a Mac and running code. So if I do anything Docker or anything, like Twitch streaming, this is this not going to work because um, it's just not enough power uh, and there's no no video card, no real video card. So I have a Windows PC, uh, which I play games on, but also I stream to Twitch with. And then I take those HD60 Elgato capture cards and I plug my MacBook into their HD. So that way inside of my OBS software, uh, which is, uh, we're going down further down the rabbit hole, but uh, I use OBS to stream the Twitch. I can actually have a window, which is just my Mac laptop. So I'm basically piping my Mac laptop into my PC and then up to Twitch. So that way nothing degrades and I can do 1080p streams. So then are you physically working on the Mac? Yes. And the Okay. Like, I, I honestly do not know how to code on Windows. Um, <laughs> Who does? <laughs> I am so used to Mac that I don't even want to attempt to try to open up the, the terminal and try to do that. Um, I'm much rather, I'm way more comfortable with all the commands on the Mac. So it's just emulating it. Well, not even emulating, I'm just piping it into the PC and then up to the internet. But the way that it's piping in, is it piping in the whole screen or just a portion of the screen? It's the whole screen. The whole screen? Yeah, I just give, I give my whole screen up. Okay. And then that gives me the entire widescreen. So like I'm actually coding and sharing my MacBook, but mm -hmm. the entire widescreen is where I have like the chat up. I've got the Chrome browser up over here. I've got my mixer uh, program up. So I'm able to do all that stuff on the big screen and just share the small screen. Okay, cool. Yeah, this is super interesting to me just from like a someone who wants to someday Twitch like coding or, or things like that, but also like running meetups and getting the best output from that or, you know, all of this remote stuff that we do, right? like teaching is, is another thing, but also just like general sharing throughout the day. Like when I try and share this 38 inch monitor that I have it's it doesn't always come across super well when someone else is just using their their MacBook screen. Yeah, that that resize extension, I'm super excited about. Yeah, that's like whoa, you just changed my life right there. That's awesome. Uh, I just learned it of it this week. Uh, I was always manual like setting spectacle up to do like proper, not even proper like hacky resizing to what I think is going to be 1080p. Nice. But I will say that the majority of what I learned, I learned this year <laughs> from being stuck at home. Just like lots of research, lots of YouTube videos. Yeah. How about uh, another tangible piece of, of your setup? How about keyboards? What is your keyboard like? Cable, I'll ask you first. I use Right now it's a, a MacBook. Laptop keyboard. Yeah. <laughs> is that what you use full time? Yeah. Nice. I occasionally think about getting a nicer keyboard i usually don't bother but if you have great recommendations i might invest i'll go next since mine is kind of boring and it's almost the same uh, i use the apple magic keyboard uh, which is the reason i started using this is because i wanted a seamless setup between when i'm using this versus when i'm just working on the laptop straight and now i pretty much almost never work on the laptop but 
I still really like the feel of this keyboard. It's just awesome. Right behind me, I have a Keychron K3 that I, I got this like a month or two ago, thinking I would try and use that a little bit more. And I cannot get used to it. I've tried so hard, but it, I just feel so clumsy with it all the time that I know I just need to invest more time, but this just feels so good. So this is what I use. I use a $49 mechanical keyboard from Amazon called the Magic Force. Um, nice. It comes in three different flavors. So brown, red, cherry, red, and then um, the blue switches. The blues are like the, the most clickety-clackety. I've got two of them. So I've got the blue and then I've got the, um, actually, what is this? Red, the cherry reds. And I like it because I'm not really that into keyboards, but I like the feel of a mechanical keyboard. And I was... Uh, Apple keyboard. I had to do that because that's how I write code. I just like the feel, the touch. But then when they changed the keyboard on the Macs, what was it like 2016 or 15 or whatnot? Everything was different. So then I have the actual external keyboard and that was fine. But whenever I le leveraged my laptop, it was like, what's the point? So my coworker, actually the CTO of Netlify, I sat with him and he was like the whole like, you know, separate keyboard person. Um, so I had to asked a lot of questions and I was like, oh, you know, I'm just gonna try this one out. And uh, I enjoyed it enough that I bought two, one for traveling and one for at home. Nice. All right, I might have to try, especially given <laughs> you said it's pretty cheap, so. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, it's, a it's, it's low effort. Magic, magic force. We'll try and drop a link in the show notes for that. As far as other peripherals go, I tend to have a mouse on the right side and I just have the, the Apple magic mouse and I have a trackpad on the left side. And I just kind of, whichever hand is free, I gravitate towards that as I'm going. But as a Vim user, I do try and not use that as well. So there's a lot of mouseless development going on. I find that funny that you could use both sides. I, I'm left-handed, but I've just been trained to use my right hand. Really? For the, uh, the trackpad. Nice. I also did the real live uh, correction. It's $39. Um, <laughs> it's not a $49 keyboard, it's $39. And I'll add a link. Nice. That's even better. So we're kind of running a little low on time. So I think what we should do maybe is go around the horn and talk about one more hardware item that uh, you think really makes your setup or, or is a favorite part of your setup that's not, you know, your monitor, keyboard, or mouse. So Kipo, how about you go first? Mm. All right, I'm going to go off the walls. Uh, and I'm going to say my favorite thing, biggest recommendation is actually getting a kettlebells. Nice. Because... As a computer programmer, you're sitting all the freaking time. You're sitting, you're coding, you're doing stuff. It's really bad for your back. Like what we do is a little bit like rip your back up. And so you need to have some sort of exercise routine to, to clean that up. And I have this last year fallen in love with kettlebells as a way to get, like have a super easy gym in a small package that you can do whatever with. Like I went on vacation, we went in a car, I took a single 50 pound kettlebell and I can do a ton of different exercises with it and I get a full body workout just carrying it along, super easy. Kettlebell swings and like Turkish getups are a couple other things and you've got your whole body worked out right away. It's good for your back, it's good for your shoulders because yeah, there's so many, I mean, I could go along other things on like ergonomics and whatever, but no matter what you do, you're probably going to mess up your back if you're spending a lot of time coding, find an exercise routine that'll counterbalance. Mm -hmm. As someone who built a home gym since the start of quarantine, uh, I can say the kettlebells were the first thing that I looked for. They were one of the hardest things to find. And I, I don't think that's the case now, but uh, they are invaluable. And I try and use them 
in every workout just because they're they're nice. I love kettlebell swings. I love just being able to use them. They're, they're much nicer than the the adjustable dumbbells that I got too. So they're just, they're fantastic. And one of them, like you said, like a 50 pound kettlebell can go a long way. Brent, how about you? I mentioned earlier I'm cheap, but I did splurge last year on a new camera. So it's a combo. It's the camera and the lens. And I think the lens is really what makes the the shot that I have right now. So if anybody's seen me stream or been in a Zoom call with me, you understand the uh, the bokeh you're getting right now in the pizza. But it's a Canon EOS M200. The M200 is basically the same thing as the uh, the Sony A5 or A6 series. So I think the Sony ones get recommended much more. And the, the reason for that, I think, is because you can plug in USB and it would power from your, your laptop or computer. Um, the Canon, you do have to have a dummy battery. But I happen to just be a, a Canon. Well, I'm not a Canon fan. My wife already had a Canon camera. So it just made sense just to get the Canon instead of the Sony. At least memory cards transfer and stuff like that. But the thing that really makes it is a Sigma 16 lens. So it's like a lens that you can't see it in the podcast, but it's about like maybe four to five inches long. And it actually gives you that sort of far, far enough from your face, but it's big enough to actually give you that bokeh sort of like a YouTube-esque feel as you're doing Zoom calls. And um, it was about, so the, the camera was about 499 or around that number. And then the lens was about like three something. And like I said, I splurged on it. I did not want to buy this, but it was on my wish list for the longest time. And then I, I saved up enough money and got a bonus. And I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to go ahead and, and uh, purchase thing. And I actually have not regretted it since. Nice. You look fantastic. Oh, thank you. The mixture of that, like that with the bokeh that you have on the, the pizza slice behind you. Plus, uh, we didn't talk about it really, but it, it looks like you have fantastic lighting, which I think also makes the setup, you know. The trick is actually close all the windows and cover them with like blackout curtains. Yeah. You can control the lighting as, as much as possible because a lot of times you're trying to fight the window or what time of the day it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, it took me a long time to figure this out, but just put up blackout curtains and then add light. And that's what I've been doing. Nice. Well, you, you've got it figured out. I can tell you that. looks yeah, great. YouTube. YouTube <laughs> taught, taught me everything I know. Yeah. What can't you learn from YouTube? It's great. <laughs> I will go ahead and close out with a recommendation. I think I will go with this monitor arm that I have. I really like it. It clamps to the desk and then it's just like a a visa mount. So it screws into four screws on the back of the monitor. And I just love being able to pull the monitor close and go far away and I can tilt it or or do whatever, but I can really like, if I want to like really dig in on something, I can bring it closer to my face or keep it further away, like back on my desk to keep things looking a little cleaner. But that's the other thing is every, it's just floating above my desk. So it feels like I have a lot more room to make the rest of my desk look really messy. So uh, yeah, I, I really like it. And it's, it's just a cheap one. It's the Amazon basics uh, cheap. I think it's like a hundred dollars, but it's, it's an Amazon basics brand uh, monitor arm and it, it works really well. All right. Well, that concludes our our setup show for today we kind of went long in the the software and productivity parts and uh we can post links to things and more info in the the show notes so definitely check those out and uh thank you for tuning in brian thank you for joining us this week it's been a lot of fun thank you it was a pleasure and uh we will see you next week thank you for listening we appreciate your time and your attention 
Nick did a great job filling up the show notes with those links. So definitely check it out. It's chock full of goodies. Have you heard of Changelog Weekly? It's our editorialized take on this week in software development delivered each and every Sunday to your email inbox. Check it out at changelog.com slash weekly. We put a lot of love into it. JS Party is produced by me, Jared Santo, with music by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. We are brought to you by awesome sponsors. Special thanks to Fastly, Linode, and LaunchDarkly for their support. Next up on the pod, K-Ball, Feroz, and Amel welcome special guest Jen Creighton to the party. Stay tuned for that one. It's going to be hitting your podcast feed next week. <laughs>